This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in Chinese Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Subi Rautio, and I am one of the hosts of the channel. On the podcast today, we have Roberta Zavoretti, affiliated member of the Global South Studies Center at the University of Cologne. Roberta is here to talk about her new book, Rural Origins, City Lives, Class and Place in Contemporary China, which was published in 2017 by University of Washington Press and in the autumn of 2020 came out in paperback. Based on her long-term ethnographic fieldwork among a diverse group of migrant workers in the city of Nanjing, Roberta Zavoretti's book offers a nuanced and critical ethnographic account of internal labor migration in China. Rural Origins City Lives probes long-held assumptions about migrant workers who live and work in increasingly stratified and diversified Chinese cities. Roberta Zavoretti does an excellent job at portraying this diversity through the aspirations and everyday lives of rural-born urban dwellers to argue against policy discourse and media portrayals that project migrants as a homogenous group. In doing so, Rural Origins City Lives argues that more, after more than 30 years of open-door reform, class formation, not resident status, is key to understanding inequality in contemporary China today. We will be discussing these chapters in more details with Roberta, who we have the pleasure of joining us on the show today. Roberta, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for your invitation. So I'd like to begin um, today's discussion by asking you about your background and how you grew to be interested in doing anthropological research on rural-born urban dwellers in China. Mm. Yes, it's it's actually a fairly long story. I've studied Chinese studies in Italy as a, as a very young woman um, for five years, got my degree there. It was before the Bologna process. That means that it was a rather long degree comparable to a master's degree nowadays. And then I did other kind of jobs, uh, mainly in Brussels, related to the, uh, to the European Union. And then at a certain point, I decided that I wanted to go back to studying. And I moved to London, where I did, um, where I did that. I studied anthropology at uh, the School of Oriental and African Studies, University of London. Um, gaining a master's and then later on a PhD. Um, yeah, the choice of anthropology was um, something that came about actually after working in policy for a few years um, because I really felt the need for a micro, um, highly qualitative um, research approach that could give a better understanding of why thing, things happen <laughs> in ways that policy is often unable to either grasp or predict. And I thought that anthropology with ethnography and a rather eclectic spectrum of uh, theory as well was offering that possibility. Um, I totally fell in love with the discipline at first. And it seemed a natural choice for me to go back to China to do my fieldwork because, of course, um, I had already um, some kind of experience of living there. I could speak the language. Um, and I had still um, several contacts there. Um, the issue of migration was an issue that had always interested me, um, partly because I've been a migrant myself most of my life. Um, I also come from a country where many people are migrants. So Italy is a is a classic example of a of a country with lots of out migration and internal migration as well. 
um, it was also something that seemed to me very urgent. Had been seeming seemed had been um, very urgent on headlines and on research papers for a long time since the nineties. There was a lot of um, literary production on this topic, and therefore, um, yeah, when I suggested this project to my supervisor, everybody was kind of happy with it. Uh, it was not very clear to me what I was going to do because I had read a lot of literature and it seemed to me like everything had already been written. But to, to some extent, I was not fully satisfied <laughs> um, with with what had been published. Um, although lots of books, monographs, you know, and articles on 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 internal migration in China are extremely insightful and fascinating. But to some extent, I, I felt that um, there was a little contribution that perhaps somebody else could give. And and this, this is the feeling that actually brought me to the field. Yeah, and I think that um, you, in the introduction itself, so the introduction is titled The Paradigm of Rural to Urban Migration in Contemporary China. And in the introduction, you really um, outline um, that this this other this wealth of other migrant research being conducted both in China and, of course, um, across the world. And you present this background in a very insightful and descriptive manner. And then at the same time, you describe your first impressions of of peasant workers in China, so the Nongmingong. And in this chapter, um, by doing so, you you trace these discussions and the trends of, fo- of that you focus on on migrant labor in China, and just like just like you were saying now, you point out the gap, uh, which is that so much of this re- research tends to focus on official discourse on quality, um, um, in other words, soldier and modernity, um, w- whereas at the same time, scholars um, by by Focusing on this discourse, you argue that scholars too easily fall into the mistake of generalizing rural migrants into a homogenous category. Or this is at least how I interpreted your your um, description of the of the of the wealth of scholarly work that's being completed um, on migrant migrant studies at the time. Um, so thereby, by generalizing the rural migrant, these categories of rural and urban easily become fixed realities, and thereby kind of opposed to one another. Um, perhaps you could tell our listeners a bit more about um, about the Chinese urban context in, in migrant studies and a bit more about these representations and the images that are often projected onto workers um, who undergo labor migration in China. Hmm. Yes, yes. The, I think the introduction tries, attempts exactly to do that, to actually give a picture of what this paradigm is. It's very difficult for us to understand it, uh, for as I mean, from uh, the perspective of somebody living on the European continent, I think, because we do not have this perception of the migrant as a bureaucratic category, which is in, instead fact in, in China, right? Or it has been for so long, at least, um, because of the of of the fact of the of the. Um, household registration that has been for a very long time a a fixed part of somebody's life, something that was not possible to change easily, and that was a state bureaucratic category, Um, which means that you can very well uh, live in a city for 20 years, or you can even uh, be born in a city and still have a rural household registration in, in China is very normal, or was very normal. Um, and this has historical reasons, which are very well documented, and so on and so forth. Um, so, so this is an actual, I don't like to use the word truth, right? But um, but this is an actual truth in China. So it's, it's not a, a shortcoming of literature to point that out. It's it's actually a fact. On the other hand, yeah, we're not only speaking of a bureaucratic category, we're speaking of a whole common sensical way of thinking about the world, which means that um, 
that in common speech, in everyday practice, speaking about migrants, um, so internal migrants in, in China, means a very specific thing um, that is portrayed on the media, is portrayed on propaganda, uh, is is continuously referred to in many ways. Uh, it, it's just basically a, a talk about a character that is a very specific character with very, very specific features and um, that basically immediately recalls a whole political discourse that is actually quite complex. Um, when I... When I started doing fieldwork, I was really uh, amazed uh, about how st- stable this category seemed to be in, in, in common speech, in dialogues, in discussions, and so on and so forth. But then when I had to do the fieldwork in the everyday, so the nitty-gritty of fieldwork, you know, making... Uh, uh, establishing relationships with people and trying to follow them everywhere they go, trying to try to get into their lives and participate in what they do and so on and so forth. It, it was actually an extremely unstable category. Very, very difficult to put your finger on what a rural migrant is. Um, rural urban migrant, I mean. So, um, yeah, this was one of the paradoxes I had to deal with during the first few months of the of the fieldwork, right? So on the one hand, a very stabilized kind of um, narrative about what a rural to urban migrant is or is supposed to be, and how how they look, how they look, how they behave, where they are coming from, what they are going to do with their lives. All of this is extremely fixed in the narrative. And then, on the other hand, in the in the in the practice, in the everyday practice of fieldwork, it it was often quite difficult to to figure out who was doing what and who were coming from where. Um, it was it was a lot messier as often we find, right? Um, yeah, so this is basically one of the first sparks behind behind the whole book. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then in the first chapter, so the first chapter is titled, Who is a Peasant Worker? You really go into more detail on, on what these um, to rural-born urban dwellers. Um, perhaps you could tell our listeners, who maybe not all of them might be so familiar with the Chinese context, perhaps you could um, tell our listeners a bit more about these labels that you encountered during your fieldwork that were being attached to, to your interlocutors. Yes. Um, well, the, the rural to urban migrant worker is somebody who um, is generally has a history of migration uh, in his or her family, at least. And um, the fact that um, the rural to urban migrant worker, or how I call them in the book, the rural-born dwellers of the city, uh, they don't have a history, family history in the city, and so. Often they they lack they used to lack household registration has a whole number of very concrete and material consequences in their lives. Um, but in this first chapter, what was interesting to me was um, was that despite this this very material and and concrete aspect linked to household registration, linked to professional activity, linked to educational level and so on and so forth, there was a whole uh, number of strategies that people had in order to position themselves in one way or another vis-a-vis this whole paradigm of the migrant worker. So there were people who um, had to embrace it because it was obvious that they were at the bottom um, layer of society and therefore they would be very direct on on the fact that they were they were um, outsiders because at the end of the day this is what we are talking about right they were outsiders economically politically uh, socially and so on and so forth and then there were people um, who had a little bit of a cleaner job <laughs> who were maybe a little bit younger um, spoke 
perhaps a better Mandarin without such a strong accent and so on and so forth. And these could actually try to pass independently from what their bureaucratic administrative status was, right? This could actually try to pass and they really tried. And I think it's, my ethnography is not the only one that mentioned this. Um, but they really tried to pass as um, um, as people belonging to a different kind of background and as people belonging to a different kind of class, right? So in here, you already see what are the issues that come to intersecate with each other, so to say. Um, it's, it's class, right? It's uh, geographical um, origin that is easily recognizable in China, um, for example, through the language how people speak. Um, it's gender, so how you perform femininity or masculinity in a particular way uh, rather than in another. Um, and we could go on, um, you know, uh, another one very important, health, for example, the fact that the, the um, rural to urban migrant worker is always uh, perceived as a threat to public health, right? or a threat to public order. Um, so what was interesting for me at the beginning is, is, was to see how people who are in that situation of being outsiders, of, of belonging to, of, of, of basically dwelling in a place where they will always feel outsiders probably, or they will always be defined as outsiders, no matter how long they stay there. So how, how do these people deal with this? You know, what strategies do they have in the everyday to, to actually try and, and cope with this unbelievably heavy situation? And I found, I found a lot of creativity um, in this and a lot of humor as well, unsurprisingly. <laughs> Um, yes, this this is basically what the what the first chapter is about. Yeah, and then in chapter two, you really um, move closer to looking at how these um, identities, for example, class, language, um, fashion, gender, are being negotiated through relatedness. So chapter two is titled um, "Speaking of Oneself," and in this chapter, you describe the webs of relationships that constituted your interlocutor's social, moral, and emotional subjectivities and and thereby um, allowed them to position themselves in relation to Nanjing um, urbanites. Could you tell us a bit more about this? How did your inter interlocutors negotiate um, these identities and how did their experiences of migration play into these narratives? Yeah. Yeah. The second, second chapter actually came about, um, let's say, fairly natural, uh, naturally as I started to get to get more uh, more intimate with the people I was I was working with, so um, it was very interesting to me to see how the, the how people define themselves in ways that were not so affine to the ways in which the the official narrative defines migrant workers. Well, you know better than me, of course, uh, but just for those who are not particularly familiar with China, the official narrative on the migrant worker. In China, can be at times extremely individualistic, right? Can be extremely uh, focused on the migrant worker, projected on modernity, uh, that that you know faces a, a dangerous trip into the site of modernity, to so the big megalopolis, in order to basically win his or her own underdevelopment. I'm putting it in extremely raw and, and, and in crude terms, but sometimes when you read, you know, newspaper articles or you see television representations of, of migration, at times it, the discourse is very, it's very similar to that. And um, this is always a very interesting thing about China, that you have a state that has such a very uh, strong and and, and powerful. On the other hand, when you actually talk to people, um, yeah, this is always in the background, but people tend to define themselves in completely different ways. 
They tend to define themselves relationally. They don't tend to define themselves as, you know, fearless individuals <laughs> on the path to modernity. They can do that sometimes. Uh, but overall, in the everyday, um, especially if, if you don't do a lot of interviews, you do a lot of particip- participant observations where you see them uh, in, in, the, in the very manial everyday tasks, right? Um, they, they tend to define themselves relationally. So relationally means in uh, just a position with some, somebody else or in relation to somebody else. So in just a position to the people who have, for example, an office job and they don't need to work manually, right? So they've never been farming. They've never been uh, working on the street for 12 hours in a row, etc. Uh, or in relation to somebody else that, that is similar to me. So my village mate, for example, my relative, uh, the person who speaks the same language I speak, and so on and so forth, or the person who, who does the same job I do. And, um, and this I found also uh, very illuminating because it takes, it really, really allows you to step a little bit aside of this official official narrative of the uh, rural to urban migrant worker or the rural-born city dweller as either a winning agent or failing agent of modernity. You know, I really wanted to kind of step aside from this official narrative because it is so powerful and overwhelming that sometimes it obscures more than it illuminates. Although it's very important to keep in mind that it's there and that you have to deal with it. But sometimes um, it's, it's not very helpful in actually figuring out what, what people do with their lives or what people do with that particular narrative themselves. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it... <clears throat> a real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Yeah, exactly. It's not, I mean, it's one thing, it's one thing how people are described through, as you describe in your book, through uh, media representations, um, through TV shows, through soap operas, and then, of course, the political discourse. And also you, um, what I also really enjoyed about your book is that you um, attended a lot of lectures during your time in Nanjing. And you you also um, described these, these dialogues, these communications you had with scholars who were writing and talking about... Um, um, or using the language of this kind of political discourse through their through their own work, and um, I think it was really insightful that you provide this this these con- these conversations you had with these scholars in your work to kind of position um, both position yourself as an academic, but also position the the wider discourse. Um, before we move on, because you've been talking um, about you've mentioned quite a few times the kind of the jobs that. Uh, how people relate um, relate to others through jobs and through different identities. But perhaps you could tell our listeners um, what kind of jobs did your interlocutors do? So you have quite a few field sites in Nanjing. Perhaps you could provide a very brief overview of of these um, of these field sites and the people that you were that you were working with there, just so the listeners have an idea on the or, or an impression on the on the field sites. Yeah, sure. Um, it was it was actually a, um, a fairly unusual approach um, because because precisely because um, what you mentioned, um, Nanjing is a particular. It's it's not a very particular kind of city, but it's not the city where people would tend to do a classic study of uh, rural to urban migration in China. So the most classic studies we have. Well, I am thinking about the one study that for me is the great classic in, in the in the field, Strangers in the City by Li Zhang. Um, well, this was a very early, uh, super timely book, a very well written, 
that I would suggest everybody reads uh, because I still find it so insightful. And it was based in Beijing, right? So the capital uh, with a, that, that offered a very, very clearly sealed enclave, um, ethnically and, and linguistically homogeneous. Um, so this is one type, right? Um, probably more difficult to do that nowadays because, of course, the size of, of migration has changed since then. We are talking about a book published in, I think, 2001. So uh, a few years have, have passed. Then there is another um, kind of, of book that you find easily in the genre, which is, um, which is the, the factory ethnography shop floor ethnography, right? So that would be mainly, um, yeah, books like Made in China, for example, um, that um, um, bring you to basically the south of the country in, in special economic zones with lots of factories and people living in dormitories and so on and so forth. Um, I didn't want to do this kind of ethnography, I thought that the literature on this kind of environment was already very rich and very telling. Um, lots of very interesting debates, but I didn't feel I could contribute a lot doing another shop floor ethnography. Um, Nanjing is a, it's a large city. It's, it's not one of the largest cities in China, but it's a large city. And it's a city that is considered to be also a cultural center in many ways. So it's not, it, it is an industrial city as well, but it's not only that. And um, I have to say, I was extremely lucky with the Department of Sociology of Nanjing University that hosted me uh, in the best possible way from my point of view. This included that, um, this included um, inviting me to participate to the life of the department where I learned an enormous amount um, about China in general and about Chinese academia in particular. But Nanjing in itself was not the kind of place where people would expect me to do that kind of research. So even when I was at the department, um, people would tell me, some people would tell me, why do you do this kind of research here? You know, there is nothing for you to find here. You should go to Guangdong and you should do shop floor ethnography. And, you know, Nanjing was at the time already a very large metropolis and it would be would have been impossible for the whole economy to run without um, without in migration of labor <laughs> so um, in, in fact most of the people who were working in retail for example in or in 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 this kind of small size industry were actually people who had some kind of history of migration um, it was very easy to figure that out just because the size of the of population movement in China now is so enormous. And um, the, the field sites I tried, to, I tried to isolate, I had to isolate some kind of small field sites within big megalopolis, of course. And I, I decided to actually look at three different groups of workers. So workers who work uh, on the street as sellers, so street peddlers, um, then workers uh, working in a tailor shop. Of course, textile industry is enormous in China, and it's it's a very big sector. These ones were working in in a shop selling um, selling um, clothes, tailored clothes. And then uh, the third group was a group of bakers and cake sellers that were working for a small size enterprise owned by a European um, entrepreneur, but everything very small. So most, so all the three field sites were comparable in a way that um, they were geographically close to each other. They were small size enterprises of different types, of course, but still very small. And they actually employed very similar kind of people, sociologically speaking, very similar educational level, very similar geographical and class background. But then already there, despite the homogeneity of, of, the, of the 
people working in these different businesses, you could see some very obvious differences um, related to the practice of the work, related to, um, to visions of the future and of the present, related to political visions as well, very different political horizons, um, which, which was extremely interesting to, to actually analyze. Hmm. Yeah, and I'm I'm wondering um, if if it kind of if, if another similarity was how your interlocutors kind of defined um, what in in chapter three of your book you describe as a kind of stuck in between two places. So so I'm quoting directly from your book. You said you write dwelling in remote fringes or constrained spaces that do not belong to either the countryside or the properly urban center, such as factories and dormitories. So. Um, was the, can you tell our listeners a bit more about um, about this notion of stuck in between, and also um, this kind of um, I mean, is 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 this also a call to redefine how urban spaces are being um, described in in contemporary Chinese, or not just de- described, but how they're being lived in, yeah, and being reshaped, yeah. Yeah, um, this this idea of being stuck in between is very is very rooted in the genre of. Uh, in this genre of ethnography, and it's both spatial and temporal. So it's it's both as being as uh, being stuck in between spatially and and time wise, right? It's, it's, the space is, is very intuitive. It's just because uh, we always read of rural to urban migrant workers as living in dormitories, as living in areas where nobody else wants to live and um, and therefore it's fairly easy to define these spaces as um, peripheries or interstitial spaces and so on and so forth and the time aspect is um, is also there because of course there is this idea that uh, since people, these people do not belong to the city, they don't really have a future there, right? It's it's actually it, there is there is a lot of of, of 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 talk about that. There is less talk about the idea of going back, for example, which I think is also a consequence a consequence of uh, the modernity narrative, right? The modernity narrative of the state is always projected on the future. Therefore, we tend to look at the future, but in fact, there are lots of people who go to the city to work and then decide to go back to the village, right? And we have lots less data, for example, about what happens to these people who try to go back. There has been some interesting work done on education in that respect. But apart from that, um, it would be very interesting to see actually how many people lose their land rights. You know, land grabbing is an enormous issue in rural China. You probably know better than me. And um, but just just to give an example of how the modernity narrative of the state affects already in a very macroscopic way our our um, our point of view, right? Including mine. I mean, I'm I'm definitely putting myself into this this lot. Um, but yeah, to go back to this idea of of in of being stuck in between is a very very established idea in the genre. But then um, the point is. Most, if, if you've ever been in the Chinese megalopolis, you know that there is an enormous amount of, of life on the public space, right? It's definitely different from a city in, say, the UK. <laughs> um, it's very, very different in that respect. People basically stick around on the street almost every day, all day long. Especially people who are employed in so- certain kind of jobs. Uh, working class jobs, so manual ma- uh, manual jobs, retail jobs, and so on and so forth. Most of these people, many of these people at least, um, of course not all, but many of these people actually have a migration history or have had in their family a migration history. Um, which means that you can be in the city center, in the very city center of the city, and have to deal with with a lot of people who have had this migration history in their in their lives in their families and so on and so forth and and it's it's very hard actually to figure out why you should call these spaces into t- interstitial spaces if they are so right in the city center <laughs> so 
So, um, yeah, sometimes it is a little bit of a chicken and egg argument. You find out that uh, we call interstitial spaces those spaces where we find poor people hanging out and vice versa. <laughs> you decide that poor people are those who are sticking in specific places. And so it basically feeds itself. Um, of course, for many people, there was an issue of um, trying to dwell, so try to live close to the working place, which meant that many people uh, I, I worked with had to live in very cramped accommodation. So, for example, one of, of the families with whom I was most, uh, more, uh, whom, whom I was closer was living in the basement. Um, but I mean, they were people working in the extreme center of a cultural capital. So in the real center of a cultural capital in China. And yes, and by all means, um, you probably um, have also met people with um, urban household registration who have to live in basements in big megalopolis in China just because the cost of uh, living, uh, the cost of, of accommodation is, is, so, is so ridiculous, right? Um, so basically, the third chapter it tries to put in question all these, these assumptions and also this assumption regarding the, the trajectory, the trajectory of not only the spatial trajectory, but also the, the, the time trajectory. Um, the fact that um, for those who have an urban household registration, it's very difficult to accept that those who have a rural house of registration might not want to go back to the country, might not want to accept that as a fixed destiny that you cannot change and that, you know, will hang on you as a Damocles word for the rest of your life, right? That they are actually occupying this space with the vision of staying there and having a life there and having children there that will grow up as uh, urban citizens and so on and so forth. I thought this this kind of relation between time and space was very important to highlight because it, it's mutually constructed, right? It's, it's really mutually constructed. And also this fact that to some extent the, the rural dweller is always implicitly associated with the Maoist past and this, with this idea that um, the Maoist past was to some extent at something that you want to leave behind, you know, to project yourself on this uh, future of city lights. This is also connected to, to, to these visions. Yeah. Yeah, and, and that really, um, I think it, it's, a, it's a good way of where you bridge on to the, the fourth chapter of your book titled Earning, Spending and Consuming. And you write about more general discussions on notions of personal success in, in urban China and judgments, on, the, uh, judgments that are posed on rural migrant workers as failed consumers. Um, and this also, just now, as you, as you were saying, the, the kind of the lack of... of um, scholarly work on returning migrants. So um, a lot of my research in Guizhou and in, in, a, in, a, in a village in Guizhou was on um, returning migrants and, and consumption. And this, you know, this notion of, of them as failed consumers was as far from reality as possible. Most of, of the of the of the young returnees um, dressed lavishly, you know, had as much bling as possible. Their hair was like straight from they'd come straight from the barber almost every time they stepped outside. So um, but but you but but your but your point your chapter has a point, this notion of the failed consumer is something that's attached um, to the rural migrant worker. And perhaps that's something that you could um, tell our listeners a bit more about um, what kind of earning, spending, and consumption practices did you observe amongst your um, interlocutors? And how um, did you interpret these practices to argue against the idea of, of um, them being failed consumers? Yeah, um, yeah. the issue of, of consumption is, is extremely interesting in a socialist society, right? Because so many of the things that nowadays people have to buy on the free market just up to a few generations ago, even less than, than two generations ago, were supposed to be provided by the state, right? 
for almost for free, at least in the cities. And actually, this vision of the city as a good place to live, you know, as a place for the good life, comes from that. For man, most of my informants comes from the fact that, um, you know, a person of my age, roughly born in early to mid seventies, grew up in a world where the best schools were in the city. The hospitals were in the city. Uh, the roads in the city were good, so were walkable. <laughs> you didn't have to build your own roads. And there was electricity in the house. You didn't have to live, uh, to live without electricity or without running water. These are uh, ideas very much linked to the socialist past, which is not so far away, despite you know, what we like to think, but um, still very present in people's memory. And, um, and this is a very interesting spin-off on the consumption strategies of people and especially on the vision of, of consumption, right? When, when I used to speak at the beginning of fieldwork with people about why they came to the city, which is this typical question that you pose as a as a very fresh ethnographer, <laughs> not very experienced, right? Um, people would really give me this kind of uh, dominant narrative that we want to consume like city people do, right? And then you see, you see how they consume and it's actually, they, they, they try to buy all these things that, they, that the city people in the socialist past had as an entitlement. So they buy education for the kids, they buy uh, hospital care for, um, for um, family members when they get sick. They try to buy a house, of course, right? Um, also because a house used to give, a house big enough used to give uh, a chance to get a household registration, um, which in turn used to give also other kinds of possibilities. Um, but yeah, this contrasts very much with all the press you get on uh, Chinese uh, rural to urban migrant workers, especially in the media and state propaganda, where they, you know, as we said, they are oft often portrayed as a threat to public order and to public health. They are often portrayed as people of lower quality. And part of this is that they, they are also portrayed as very bad consumers. So people who do not really know what to do with the money and therefore shouldn't earn any, basically, right? Because they, if they have it, they spend it, they squander it. And if they don't have it, they kill themselves to spare uh, up to the last penny. So it, it, it all goes back to this narrative of the rural to urban migrant workers, somebody cannot really take care of himself or herself and needs needs the state to take responsibility for for him or her, right? What I what I found was obviously a very, very different uh, kind of picture that to my own surprise at that time I have to say was Yeah, and this also really um this bridges nicely with the next chapter, Negotiating Success, where you look at the notion of success um, as the enterprise of migration and money-making. Um, and, and you describe a really, really fantastic description um, through ethnography um, on how social relationships and continuity bind people together to define success. Um, perhaps you could tell us a bit more about these diverging visions of success that were so important to your interlocutors? Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, the issue of, of consumption is, is really related to this idea of success because, as you said, there is this, um, this uh, image of the successful consumer, so the successful person both in earning and in spending, so has money, has taste, uh, is competitive on the job market and so on and so forth. So of course, um, of course, it's very easy to pitch this ideal, you know, upper middle class um, ideal subject, if you want to use the term, um, against this paradigm of the rural to urban migrant worker who is dirty, uh, low, badly educated, um, 
unable to take care of him or herself and so on and so forth. Um, and as you know, the idea of success nowadays in China is one of the pillars of, of, um, of the state ideology, right? Everybody is really pushed to be successful in their own way, to find their own way to be, to be better, to get better, to be richer, and so on and so forth. Um, in this in this respect, I think I was um, I was really inspired by by the lives of the informants towards the end of my fieldwork because it was the moment often happen it happens it was the moment in which I actually managed to get a little bit more inside family issues and family lives and. I, I managed to figure out the amount of importance that family life has or had uh, at that time for my informants. Um, it's, it is really the core, not only in, in, in terms of, of visions of, that they have about their own lives, but it is even the material core. Because, of course, when you make your living uh, by running a family enterprise or by working in a family enterprise. Family is also the one institution that guarantees your subsistence, right? And with your subsistence, it guarantees um, your, your affective subsistence, it guarantees your vision of the future, it guarantees all of these things. That's really at the ground of what it means to be human for you. So. Um, I also realized that for most of my informants, it would have been pointless to talk about having a good life, having a successful life, if you want, um, without putting family at the center. And this was not only an empty kind of rhetoric. This was something that they were doing in the everyday, right? Um, with everyday little, little and big action actions. And so um, it was also inspiring to, to pitch this against this whole rhetoric of um, romance that is now very fashionable in China, which is a very important part of the narrative of modernity, right? The fact that Chinese is, China is a modern state that allows people, to, allows people to, to choose freely their partner and to experiment during the youth um, to basically buy a diamond ring uh, to the one that is loved or a bunch of flowers and so on and so forth. All things that, of course, during socialist, high socialism, uh, Maoism were, were totally politically incorrect, let alone possible. I mean, very difficult to buy a diamond ring uh, in the high moments of Maoism, of course. Um, so, so, so there was a, an interesting contrast there between um, this this official narrative of romantic modernity, which is of course also linked to consumption and to the landscape of the city, and then this extremely sober, uh, this extremely sober choices in terms of personal relationships, even austere in some way, right? Um, extremely pragmatic and yet not void of affection. I think this is something very important to point out because also this just the position between necessity and and feelings is something that is very crucial to the to the family policy of of the party in the 20th century and 21st century still right so the feudal times were the times of necessity in which you would marry because your parents forced you into marriage but the you know the new china is a china that allows you to choose your spouse and to decide how you want to lead your family life according to your love, to your affection. Um, what I find found is way more complex, unsurprisingly, um, the fact that the people have to make pragmatic choices in terms of family relations because family relations are so fundamental to survival, to physical survival on the top of you know, any other kind of survival. And on the other hand, the fact that truly strong, effective bonds manage to emerge in this context, uh, which flies completely in the face of this 
of this opposition between um, money, the world of money, and the world of emotion, right? It's it's much more of a structure that we have in in our head sometimes. And then, um, yeah, my own experience doing ethnography was actually a very a very intricate landscape in that sense, where these things actually are much more enmeshed than 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 we generally expect. Yeah, and then moving on to your conclusion, um, which you title Making Place and Making Class, you return to the key theme that your ethnography pushes towards, which is to look at um, migration and mobility less as fixed categories, but instead as fluid entities that, that people elaborate and reinvent in their own terms and practices. You also point towards larger discussions on China's urban and rural divide, for example, what some scholars have defined as the two-tried welfare state, which you've already described, where urban residents have access to welfare and rural residents have access to land. Um, but rather than leaving it there, you really um, you know, reveal the, the gaps, the, the, the cracks in the system to construe this divide and remind the reader that even China's urban residents struggle to access basic welfare, such as education for their children and healthcare, let alone these urban uh, rural dwellers move to, to China's cities. Can you tell us a bit more about these struggles and how it further marginalizes um, your interlocutors or informants? Yeah, yeah. I thank you for this question because we haven't really talked so much about the urban residents so far, uh, which is an important part, I think, of the book and of the ethnography. Um, we've talked about how my informants, like rural-born informants, rural-born city dwellers, um, have a very strong memory of what used to be the welfare provision during the socialist Maoist time in the city, um, we need to keep in mind that Chinese cities look extremely diff- different nowadays, and not only in terms of skyline, <laughs> but also in terms of, of welfare provision. So um, much of the previously public welfare provision has been privatized or is on the way uh, to being privatized, which means that also for people who have a household registra- registration, uh, this this one will not be enough as a guarantee of of welfare provision. By welfare, I, I mean really uh, uh, welfare provision as widely as widely conceived category, right? Uh, healthcare, uh, pensions, even education. You know, I mean, lots of extremely interesting things are happening in the field of education that has been privatized for several decades now. Um, at all levels. <laughs> um, yes, I mean, it, it would be very um, naive to think that just because somebody has a urban registration in a big megalopolis in China nowadays, uh, this person has free access to good healthcare, good education for his or her kids, or what used to be the case um, back in the time, housing. Housing is really the one sector where it's um, where the shift is most macroscopic because you, we have this um, state bubble in most Chinese cities that makes it extremely difficult to buy housing and to rent it as well. It's very expensive to rent housing. Um, and at the same time, uh, housing has also this very strong meaning as that one concrete foothold in a particular place right so once it during Maui's times probably with a urban household registration and a job in the city you would probably be given housing by your that way by your working unit nowadays is generally not the case anymore it can happen for some privileged state jobs, of course, and Luigi Tomba has written a lot about this. Um, but for many, many other jobs, you know, for all those people who work in private, most people who work in private companies, this is not the case. You have to buy housing on the market you, you, or you have to rent it. So it's, so it's just not enough to have a household registration to, in the city to 
to get access to a work unit that will give you housing. On the other hand, if you buy housing and you don't have a urban household registration, then you can get one probably. <laughs> which which is a funny inversion, as I say, and and many many people actually manage to do that at a very high price, of course, of uh, great great sacrifices. But many people manage to do that, and and this poses a problem for the state discourse because if if many migrant workers actually manage to buy housing and to get registration then it is so macroscopic to those who are, have household uh, registration in the city but cannot manage to buy housing, that there is not such a big of a difference. And if there is no such a big of a difference, we don't need to feel we are against each other or uh, we need to compete, right? We can build alliances, which is exactly what the the... the the state state power doesn't want to happen. <laughs> of course, state power doesn't want people to figure out that there is a working class that is excluded from privileges in China because that would be in total opposition to state discourse and propaganda. It's much more useful for the state to convince people that there is such a thing as the migrant worker that will always be different from you and therefore, you may need to be scared from, from uh, scared about him or her, uh, or that you are such a person, and therefore you have to work harder to improve yourself, right? But uh, um, I think um, this also links up to another book that has been written later on in the following years, "The Spectre of the People." Uh, which is which is basically a, a very affine argument. So that there is this this fundamental problem in in a country like China that has very very clear class inequality, but at the same time has the ideological need to proclaim itself socialist. Right? That um, what do you do with all this? groups of people who are obviously excluded from redistribution of wealth and might get pretty worked up about it. One of the things you can do with them is to try to convince them that they are not one group, that they are different groups, that they are different, right? That uh, some of you is a migrant worker, so that, you know, you cannot really be friends with them. You cannot have the same class interests with them. Um, and I think this so far has worked particularly uh, successfully in China, has been been a very successful uh, rhetoric twist of the government, um, including in academic production. So the fact that uh, it's been also successful in academic production, uh, it, it's a, it, from my point of view, is a clear sign of that. Um, but on the other hand... Um, Yes, uh, social mobility as such is also a very, very important ideological pillar for the socialist state, for the socialist state in the Chinese state. And, um, and yeah, it, it, there, there is a need to, to maintain it, to maintain it as a, as a working instrument of control as well. In that sense, I was saying, um, let's try to look at it much less as a thing but as a as a unstable signifier that can be renegotiated. Really fascinating, Roberta. Thank you for 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 providing um, me and the listeners of this show such detailed um, descriptions and of of the book itself, and expanding also beyond the chapters. Um, I've taken up a lot of your time today, but I wanted to conclude the conversation to talk a bit about what you're working on and thinking about these days. So what kind of current, what kind of projects have you picked up um, since Rural Origins City Lives was published? Yes. Um, well, I actually um, followed uh, quite in a quite linear way from, from where I had um where I had left things at the end of the book, and I, I grew more interested in kinship and family relations. 
and discover that that uh, it's an extremely intricated field. Uh, this is why many anthropologists tell you that you can study many fields, but once you arrive to kinship, it will be your last field. <laughs> Somehow, I I I I grew to understand that quite deeply <laughs> because <Yes>. I, <laughs> of course. Um, it's not so much like seeing the end of the, the light at the end of the tunnel, but just seeing one small light at the end of one small tunnel and getting ready for the next one. And uh, I did a bit of research on in the past years on marriage and social mobility, which is very related to what you actually can read in the book, but um, looks also at other social groups of different kind. Um, quite a bit of this work has already been published in, in journal articles uh, and book chapters. And I would like to go on in this sense, but um, but looking at, at relations that are not generally um, uh, legitimated by official kinship, which I think in in post-Mao China is, is an interesting topic because we have a a situation in which the law is particularly clear about certain things. Um, also, as we were saying before, a law very much grounded on a, a strong modernity narrative. Uh, and on the other hand, you have a much more variegated uh, social reality in terms of building care relations, right? And in care studies, of course, there has been a very fruitful debate on how care can contribute to kinship theory by highlighting that uh, kin might be something very different from the blood kinship we tend to be used to um, in, in, in more old-style uh, anthropology. So, yeah, this is basically the themes I'm, I'm more oriented to at the moment. Although, of course, with the current situation, it is, it is very, very difficult to, to see what will happen. Uh, I hope to be able to go back to China as soon as possible, but it's at the moment not particularly easy to do that. Yes, I, I feel you on that. And um, we just have to hope that situation changes relatively soon. Um, but but um, the I mean, so you've been building on the same material, basically, um, on the love and kinship as your as your field work in, in Nanjing. Is that correct? Mm, no, not really. I mean, some of my informants have remained and I hope will remain for a longer time. Um, no, but I, I was lucky enough to do some more fieldwork during the years I spent at the Max Planck Institute for Social Anthropology, um, which allowed me to actually gather quite a lot of material on specific issues related to um, mutual construction of gender and class, uh, intergenerational relations, care relations more widely. Um, some of the informants you will read about in the book uh, are also informants for my second stretch of research, but not all, um, because because I went for a broader uh, kind of spectrum of informants. So trying to compare what happens in um, in different milieus, in different social social classes, highly educated um, people with good you know, uh, middle-class jobs, for example, vis-a-vis -vis the people who are manual workers and they have to basically take the decisions on fairly different kind of grounds. So, yeah, it's actually, the material is often quite different from what comes out of the book, but there is also a lot of continuity. 
Okay, that sounds that sounds really intriguing, and um, I have to familiarize myself more more with your more recent work. And I also um, recommend all the listeners to go out and buy the paperback version of Rural Origins and City Lives. And meanwhile, uh, Roberto Zavoretti, we really look forward to um, to seeing how the rest of your research or new new research, new projects unfold. Um, but for now, I wanted to thank you for being on the show today. And um, I want to thank our listeners for tuning in to New Books in China Studies, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. Thank you, Roberta Zaboretti. Thank you, Sui. Thank you. And thanks to all the listeners as well. Bye. Bye.